The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. I take refuge in the Buddha <clears throat> who pervades all ten directions, whose actions are supreme, who is omniscient, whose form is unhindered and unimpeded, the one of great compassion who saves the world. And I take refuge in the intrinsic reality and characteristics of this Buddha body, the ocean of suchness, the Dharma nature, and the store of countless merits. And I take refuge in those who practice in accordance with what is real. This is because I wish to have sentient beings eliminate doubts and abandon wrongly held views and give rise to correct Mahayana faith, leaving the Buddha lineage uninterrupted. <clears throat> this is the opening of the uh, tr treatise on awakening the faith, awakening of Mahayana faith which is a, a text that was really important in East Asian Buddhism, China, Korea, <clears throat> Japan, development of Zen, some of the other Buddhist schools. <clears throat> it was thought originally to have been written by Asvagosa in the first century, but is thought to have uh, been written later in the sixth century. Um, the scholars say that there were over 300 commentaries written on this treatise, which is um, noteworthy. That means that um, throughout the ages, that many and more, most likely, teachers, monastics, found it important and important enough to spend time writing commentary on it. And as the title suggests, its intention, its explicit stated intention is to arouse faith, particularly for those who are more in the beginning of Dharma practice. And you know, when we talk about being at the beginning, that can be years. Um, and so um, it takes up the teachings of the um, of the Tathagatagarbha, the womb of the Buddha, the teachings of Buddha nature, which are so um, central in Mahayana Buddhism. Uh, we've dedicated an ango to Buddha nature recently. And the Alivajnana, the storehouse consciousness, the teachings of the Yogacara school. And so Buddhism you know, has this question, if, if all human beings have Buddha nature, or fundamentally have enlightened mind, enlightened nature, from the beginning, before a, a single action is taken, then why are we deluded? Why do our delusions run so deep? Why are they so persistent? Why are attachments so strong? Why is it so easily to get fooled by false views? And so this essential teachings of Buddha nature, which again came to the fore in Mahayana Buddhism, but were 
implicit and really explicit in the teachings of the Buddha. And that these, all of this sort of karmic history, baggage that we carry with us that resides deep within our deepest consciousness, which is why we just can't sort of reach in there and grab it um, and shake it into sense. <laughs> um, and so this treatise is really taking that up. And of course, dealing with this essential question of faith. What is faith in, in Buddhism? What is faith in our own particular tradition of Buddhism? You know, in the early years um, here, when uh, Buddhism was not, um, had not become cool and maybe gone past cool, I don't know where it is now exactly, but when it, it was not very well known by most people, it was much more of an outlier kind of thing. Um, when people would come here, as they did every month, um, there were certain aspects that were surprising to a lot of people, like this, like liturgy, like prostrations, um, like faith. A lot of people in the early years assumed that faith belonged to, to the Christian to Abrahamic traditions, that it didn't belong to Buddhism because that always and automatically meant faith in something apart, something outside like God. And while that's not how it's understood in Buddhism, faith is essential. And so this treatise takes that up. And in the introduction, um, I had actually given this talk um, in January um, and intended to give three talks during that session. I only gave one because then I got sick with COVID. Um, I don't even remember giving that talk, so I'm hoping you don't remember either. <laughs> <laughs> Although your memory may be better than mine, so. But if you do remember, that's okay. Um, <laughs> um, <clears throat> But in the introduction, it says that the author's main purpose is to instill faith, in, particularly in the minds of, of those who are newer to the path. And that faith is, um, in particular, the question is how to understand um, the role of, the, of faith, which is you know, what, an English translation of a Sanskrit term. And so one idea within faith in Buddhism is that it's a... Uh, come and test it tradition, and that's actually a translation of a Sanskrit term, um, probably loosely translated, but it means basically find out for yourself that that's a basis, a basic aspect of the teaching since the time of the Buddha. And that um, in order to, um, and that we have to have faith in order to be able to do that. In other words, we have to have enough faith to want to engage the teaching and engage the practice so that we can test it. So that has to be there sufficiently in order to just begin practicing. And then in that way to, um, to verify 
that that faith that we have placed in the teachings and practice in the three treasures is um, valid, is sort of verified, because we now are gaining our own experience. And so the hypothetical, it says, the hypothetical stance that we have at the beginning is replaced with the knowledge that, that what was previously believed to be true, hoped to be true, we had faith that it was true, is now replaced with a certainty through our own experience. That Buddhas already know that. That's how they become Buddhas. But practitioners have to go through that process. So even if we have a very deep faith in the beginning, in the teachings, in the practice, it still has to be verified. And that's really important because before it's verified, that faith, no matter how strong it is, in a sense is precarious because it can vanish. It can almost certainly ebb and flow, and it does for most people along the way. But particularly in times of great challenge, where our practice and we ourselves are really being tested by what we're experiencing internally or externally in our lives, that faith, to the extent that it's not yet fully our own experience, is, is more you know, ethereal, is more ineffable is more like clouds passing. And so it has to be um, given tangible substance, in a sense, through our own experience. And so what I wanted to do is, is focus on just one aspect of this treatise, which is the three kinds of aspiration that it teaches that are important for awakening. And that section begins that discriminating the characteristics for embarking on the way is spoken of this way because it refers to the idea of the way that is realized by all Buddhas and which all Bodhisattvas aspire to awaken, to cultivate, and to progress towards. In general, there are three kinds of aspiration to awakening. The first is the aspiration to awaken through the consummation of faith. The second is the aspiration to awakening through understanding and practice. And the third is the aspiration to awakening through realization of the way itself. And what I want to do is speak today about the aspiration through understanding and practicing later in the week through realization of the way, and on Sunday, take up the first aspect, the consummation of faith, because I thought that might be a little bit more suitable for Sunday and the sort of more general audience that we often have on Sundays. And so drawing from that, <clears throat> that section, Awakening aspiration through understanding and, and practicing the way. It says, with the aspiration to awaken through understanding and practicing the way, one should know that it is a change for the better. This is because from the first stage of true faith, these bodhisattvas intend to complete this level within the first incalculable eon. Through the Dharma of suchness, they profoundly understand what appears before them, since what they cultivate is free from characteristics. And so that's really the essential part of that section that I want to focus on. But he talks here about understanding and practice, or the author does, of understanding and practice. 
And so remember that right understanding is the first of the Eightfold Path. And that being the first of the Eightfold Path, it, is, it begins with a conceptual understanding. It has to. Trungpa Rinpoche said that the Buddha saw deeply realized how the world works and how practitioners should work. And so he taught that the path is made up of the shila, the precepts, the moral teachings, samadhi, and prajna. And so developing right understanding, and I gave a talk on this not so long ago, is just understanding what the teachings are, the basic teachings and the, the, the foundation that they rest on. Why do we do what we do? Why in Seshin, which we devote a quarter for the monastics, for those in residency, a quarter of our year to? That's a lot of time. Why do we devote that much time to this particular or these particular forms of practice? And why has intensive practice that is using different forms of skillful means, particular to each tradition, different lineages, why are those taken up? Well, it's all based on right understanding. It's based on what it is we're here to do, which is basically what is the knot that we're trying to untie? What is the, the question that we're trying to resolve? What is the hiddenness that we're trying to bring out? What is the suffering and its basis that we're trying to alleviate? The Buddha said that right view, he saw right view as the basis for all of the practice. He said there's no single factor so responsible for the arising of unwholesome states of mind as wrong view. And there's no single factor so responsible for bringing forth wholesome states of mind as right view. And so having a good understanding is really important, essential. And Bhikkhu Bodhi says that it's kind of obvious if we think about it and if we examine it because everything we do, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we're thinking whether we're aware of the decisions we're making and why, for the ways in which we react and respond to things, even impulsively, right, before a thought arises, all of that activity, all of our thoughts, words and actions, are based in our understanding of this, of what's going on of what this is, what this is, what this is, how it works, what's the good stuff, what's the not good stuff, how do you get to this, how do you get away from that? It's all based on our fundamental understanding of the world and of our place in it. So if that's not in alignment with the way things actually work, we have a little bit of a problem. We call that samsara. And so then it makes sense that our even sincere, thoughtful efforts to break those cycles that keep recreating and recreating and recreating our unhappiness and the unhappiness of others keep getting recreated if we don't really understand the inner workings. 
And so to understand the Four Noble Truths, the Buddha said, the essential just basic fact of dukkha, of how frequently and repetitively, in small and large ways, we experience disappointment and dissatisfaction. That we get what we don't want. We don't get what we do want. We're distant from those we want to be with. We're close to those we may not want to be with. The cycle of grasping, attachment, feeling that something's missing, obtaining, not obtaining, disappointment will follow no matter what. The possibility of escape, of liberation, the path. And that all of that is dependent upon our understanding of karma. We have to understand causation, how things lead to result. Because those um, wheels, intention, thought, words, actions, desires, while they are the stuff of our greed, anger, delusion, they're also the stuff of our practice, transformation, liberation. And so right view accords with those truths. That's why it's right. Not right in some absolute sense because the Buddha said so, but right because they are in alignment with the way things actually are. And so in the treatise, the author says that we should know that this, through understanding and practice, raising this aspiration for awakening, is to be on a path which is a change for the better. (laughs) Such a simple way of saying, of speaking to something that is so all-inclusively transformational and profound. And how? It says, through the dharma of suchness, one profoundly understands what appears before them. And we therefore cultivate that which is free of characteristics or which is in accord with suchness. The teaching that Buddha nature, your Buddha nature, means that you're complete from the beginning. That whatever our history is, our actions are, the regrets we carry, the harms we have done, whatever accomplishments we've done, whatever good things we have brought forward, that all of those have significance because they create karma, but they do not touch our basic nature. They do not increase or decrease suchness because suchness is without characteristics. It is your essential nature. It's my essential nature. It's the essential nature of everything. And essential means from before the beginning. It doesn't mean essential as in having an essence existing somewhere, being something. The Buddha realized and seemed to know even before his enlightenment that anything that had that char- those characteristics of being able to be generated would ultimately disappoint and dissatisfy us because it wouldn't last. Because by its very nature, it would be impermanent. So to rely upon that means that at some point, that which you're relying upon would leave you 
alone, bereft. And so through the Dharma of suchness, to profoundly understand and to conform to and practice. You know, and conform in in English doesn't always have a nice sort of uh, association. You know, to conform is to have to, you know, sort of force ourselves into a box. That's not what it means. It means to align, to move in accord with, to harmonize with. Samsara is, in a sense, trying to conform, to bend ourselves to what we want, and to get the rest of the world to try and bend to our desires. That's why, you know, when we come into practice, there is so much tension. And practice can be challenging because we're so um, sort of habituated to trying to get what we want through some measures of control, making it happen. So this is not that. This means to attune to, to be faithful to what is real, to trust what is true. And the power of aspiration, of course, is that it's not expectation. When we bring forth an aspiration, so at the beginning of session, it's always good to bring forth an aspiration. Not what do I want to get from this week, right? If you do that, you're already in trouble, right? Because you're setting up something solidified in your mind that you want, and now you have to get there. That's bending, trying to bend the circumstances, bend ourselves to our desires. Aspiration isn't like that. Aspiration is it's not ambiguous. It's very clear. It's very powerful. But it just it isn't solidified into a time or a place or a look, <laughs> right? Or a feeling or anything. It's just aspiration. It's like giving rise, giving birth to a a most powerful dream. And like all dreams, it's created in the mind. But when we bring forth a dream that is based in what is true and what we are capable of, then it's an aspirational dream. And so the way that the text proceeds to, in understanding and practicing the Dharma, is through the paramitas. By encountering Prajnaparamita, who sits on the right hand of the Buddha, on the altar, the mother of all Buddhas. The ultimate, exquisite union of all dualities that goes beyond any conceptual understanding but is perfectly in accord and at home within concepts and ideas because nothing is left out. Understands the depths of our delusion because otherwise it couldn't be wisdom and we couldn't practice it. And at the same time, encourages us to, as Dogen says, aim high, to not be afraid to have courage, to be bold, to believe that your life can be the life of a Buddha. 
and to cultivate that aspiration without letting it fix anywhere. Don't turn it into an image, an idea, a fantasy, a conclusion. You'll know when that's happening because you'll be struggling. There will be that dream that we now have fixed ourselves to, and then there will be where you find yourself in the moment. And those will seem to be in conflict. Whereas an aspiration, there is no conflict. Wherever you are, wherever you find yourself, not inherently, we can create a conflict because that's what we do. <laughs> but it's not in the aspiration itself. And so, and so it points to, the, the text points to the paramitas. So in the Mahayana, we have the bodhisattva precepts, right? To affirm life, to not kill, to be generous, to not steal, and so on, which basically relates to the Buddha's teaching on the ten wholesome actions. They're not perfectly... They're not exactly the same, but they're, they're analogous. It's sort of the bodhisattva paths, um, presentations of those actions that, when not done well, create the most binding karma, the most suffering. And when we practice them in alignment with what is true, we're living like a Buddha. And so th- those are bodhisattva precepts. The path of the bodhisattva in the Mahayana follows the paramitas. So these work together. Of course, the precepts are part of the paramitas. And so the first of those is dana paramita. And the text says, the practitioner conforms to and practices dana paramita because they know that the dharma nature, their dharma nature, is intrinsically devoid of greed. And so what this is saying it's really describing how to practice. So we might think that, well, I'm deluded, right? I've got all these attachments and false views, and I don't even know what they are, because they just seem true. And all of these impulses, the kleshas, all these impulses, these strong forces, these strong emotions that arise, these habit patterns that I fall into, all of that. And what I need to do is get to that place like do something, deal with all of that stuff so that that goes away and then I'll arrive at the other shore of enlightenment, crossing over, paramita. But what this is saying is that wherever we are, whatever state you find yourself in, in that very moment, rather than trying to bend your circumstances, to meet, to gratify your desire or your sense of what is needed. And rather than bending yourself to try and conform, to fit into some particular shape, whole, the Dharma, that you actually just let both of those impulses fall away. And in that, you then begin to experience your profound nature, your suchness, 
And that even before we have any glimpse of that, it's here. Because it's not created. It's never apart. It's never distant. It's never lacking. It's never dim. So what we're liberating, in a sense, is our ability to directly perceive, directly experience, encounter what is completely present all the time. And so awakening faith is very important because it it just seems like, yeah, it sounds good, but I'm not buying it. I'd like to buy it. In fact, I sign up as buying it. But what I see myself doing moment after moment is not buying it. How do I know? Because I keep going back and drinking from that trough of my own misery. I keep doing the same old thing. And so to be giving, to be free from covetousness, to practice generosity. Why? Because that's my nature. Because my nature is free, it says, of covetousness, of wanting, wanting, wanting. I experience that wanting. That's the habit that I've developed. And I've had a lot of help with that as have you. But that's not actually my basic nature. And so practice is actually just allowing all of those impulses, which are denying, in essence, our true nature. And as we allow those to just relax, fall away, pass by, don't give them power, then what remains is what's there all along. The essential nature of reality. You are this, I am this. Complete and total, not lacking in anything. And to see then how, to observe how our clinging, our self-clinging, dampens that. You know, that's such an important aspect of practice. That's why as we're developing mindfulness, and concentration, that what really needs to be developing in equal measure is just the brightness of your own awareness, the awareness to see. So that when we go down those old pathways again, reach back for those old habits, we're seeing ourselves do that. And we see what happens. We see the fruit of that. And we see it again, and then we see it again, and then we see it again. And eventually it starts to like, we start to understand it or recognize what we've been seeing all along, but not really recognizing, because we're not ready. We're not having enough faith or trust in what is actually being verified in front of us, but is not yet sort of stepped into our consciousness. And so it's like when you're sitting during session and you're a little uncomfortable or you're a little tired or you're a little hot or you're a little whatever, you don't like it. And there's just that first moment of recognition. Notice that. Now, notice what happens next. That when your mind seizes on that, recognizes it, identifies it, names it, builds it up, builds it up, builds it up, 
Now, how are you doing? Just check it out. How are you doing now? Observe that. The thing that we're reacting to is just the thing itself. What we're experiencing now, this built-up disturbance, is the workings of my mind. Now, it arises, and you don't do that. You don't deny it, you don't avoid it, you don't suppress it, but you don't run after it, you don't build on it, you don't escalate, you don't proliferate. Now, observe what happens. One teacher said, to not engage in conceptual proliferation is liberated giving. It's worth reflecting on. When I don't conceive of thoughts and ideas and proliferate in those, make them, give them a reality they don't have. That that is a liberated form of generosity. Giving. Things just are as they are. Without appropriating without taking possession of, without manipulating, projecting. The next paramita is morality, the precepts, sometimes referred to as the discipline. The text says, knowing essential nature of reality, that it is free from attachment to the desires of the five senses, the sense organs, the practitioner, in accord with this, devotes themselves to the perfection of the precepts. So knowing that our essential nature, our Buddha nature, who we are, beneath all of the projections and ideas and histories, is free of attachment to desires. Not bound. Just moves freely. And so then when we practice the precepts, we're practicing in alignment with that. I mean, think about it. In, when we're <clears throat> going against ourselves in any aspect, when we're going really against the teachings, the Dharma, why does that hurt? <laughs> why does it cause pain? Why does it create suffering? Why does it increase the sense of separation and distance between us? Why does it strengthen our reactions and our strong, difficult emotions. <clears throat> the fact that it does that should be telling us something. Because if <clears throat> what we were doing within a deluded state was in accord with ourselves in the world, then it should be flowing. Things should be working pretty well. And the fact that we're getting that feedback all the time, is really valuable and helpful and essential. The thing is, though, that we have so accommodated ourselves to that. Sort of numbed ourselves. And that a lot of that, you know, until it reaches a certain threshold, and then we notice it. But a lot of the, the every day, all the way through the day, dukkha that arises for us, we often don't notice because it's quieter. As Thoreau said, most people live lives of quiet desperation. Attachments don't exist on their own. And without attachments, there is no suffering. 
Think about that. Without attachments, there's no suffering. There's no self-grasping, self-centered, killing or stealing or lying or misusing sexuality or clouding the mind. And so to live in non-harming. Teacher said, to not get involved in discursive thought is illuminated morality. To not get involved doesn't mean to not think. It means to not get entangled, to not be seduced and fooled by our thoughts, as though they are truths, self-truths. And so when those around us are building hate and confusion, division and deceptions, to be a practitioner means to stand on the ground of reality. It means to know who you are and how you want to be in this world now and to do it to the best of our ability. And in that, we're standing with all sincere practitioners. We're standing with the Buddha and all of our ancestors. We're standing with the earth, which is always in alignment with itself, and shouts hallelujah when we come into alignment with ourselves and the earth. And then there's transcendental patience, The treatise says, knowing our essential nature of reality, that it is originally without suffering and free from anger and anxiety, we live in accord with it, devote ourselves to the perfection of patience and forbearance, which is so important. And you got to admit, Sashin is a pretty good place to, to, to like bring forth patience, right? How are you doing with that? We're not going to make it very far on this path without patience. Without what is the lack of patience? Impatience. Being impatience, which becomes aggressive, controlling, striving, grasping, clenching. And so to bring forth aliveness and urgency, bodhicitta and patience. That's why aspiration is so powerful because there's no time set. You're not working under the pressure of a ticking clock. There's your finite life, yeah, and the unknown of that. And so there is urgency because why wait? But there is patience because there must be in order to continue to practice and meet and face and hold and release all of the things that will try our patience. But also, as this teaching is telling us, because that's our basic nature, is patient, at ease. It's not in conflict. Our basic nature is not in conflict with time, with accomplishment. It is free from anger and anxiety itself which don't just exist, but are born within our minds and hearts and bodies. And then there's transcendent effort or diligence. Knowing the essential nature of reality is free from indolence, from laziness. 
being in accord with it, we devote ourselves to the perfection of joyful effort. And it's so important to include that joyful effort and to allow joyfulness what that means. Allow yourself to discover what that means. In other words, don't have a fixed idea of what joy is. We always think of joyful as likely in a very you know, happy, buoyant, light, dot, dot, dot. What is the joyfulness, the joyful effort in a moment where you're struggling? I remember sitting so many times in this hall during session, struggling my ass off not liking what was happening, not liking myself very much, not seeing much yielding, and reflecting that that was not unfamiliar, right? That didn't start when I started practicing. And that the first hints of joyfulness for me in such moments was recognizing that, yeah, all that's going on, but I'm here. And I have a practice, and there is a path, and I have faith in that. And that's a whole different thing from just spinning and confusion and hurt. And so to be in accord with our own zeal, our own lack of indolence, laziness, the universe is alive. Isn't that why, isn't that what captures us? To go out in the full of summer, it's alive. It's everywhere. It's vibrating. Anywhere we look, everywhere we look, is infused with aliveness. We're not different. And laziness is... I remember when my father, when I was young, and my father was a, smoked a lot. And I'd wake up every morning and listen to him go through his hacking and hacking and hacking. And I was always thought, I don't know, is this the day you die? Cough yourself to death? And I, would, and I remember at one point thinking, you think you're going to live forever. So there's no need to change. No urgency. Not even any patience. Just complacency. And an addiction. <laughs> an actual addiction. But to not be complacent within suffering, to not be complacent in the presence of samsara, to care, very simply, to care deeply. And so to be diligent, to be joyful in our effort and to learn how to apply ourselves in such a way that is wholehearted and vigorous and yet can be lived, right? And so we apply ourselves in a very particular way during session and can do that because it's a discrete period of time. It's not forever. It's a very particular period of time. And so it begins and we enter with that kind of vigor and can keep sustaining ourselves in it because we know it's not forever. It's just for this period of time. And then it ends and we continue, (laughs) but with a different level of intensity. And so it's not so much a a matter of learning how to work hard, but how to practice well.
wholeheartedly with urgency and patience. And then there's trans, a transcendent concentration, jhana, our meditation, knowing essential nature of reality is calm and free from confusion and conflict in its very essence, our basic nature. So being in accord with it, then, we practice meditation. That's how we practice our meditation. Understanding that our basic nature is not a hell ride. It's not a circus. It's not a constant upheaval. Our basic nature is calm, clear, and peaceful. And so, again, if we just continue to follow the Buddha's basic teaching, and leap free of all of the forms of denial and suppression, because that doesn't send anything away, it just makes it stronger and hidden. Or to get entangled actively through the proliferation of our thoughts and stories. And when we just renounce those two habits, then whatever we're experiencing, whatever we're experiencing, we are now more fully in accord with the reality of that basic nature. And if we are attentive, if your mindfulness, as your mindfulness develops, you will know that. You will experience that as a truth. Even in the midst of something that is difficult, it's not the same. And then the Prajna, the paramita of prajna, because one knows that the dharma nature, your dharma nature, is originally awakened and free from delusion. And so we sit in that faith. And I, um, you know, there's no way to know, but I kind of doubt there probably aren't very many people who, from the beginning, truly believe that through and through. We have some faith. We want it to be true. We're practicing on the basis of that. But we doubt, right? Because the, the evidence of our lives and the evidence that still keeps showing itself up to us seems to contradict, <clears throat> seems to be saying something different. If my self-nature had all of those wonderful qualities, then why isn't that what's happening in every moment? And that quandary, that confusion, is simply showing us the degree to which we do not understand yet our basic nature, which is not apart from our confusion, which is not apart from those strong and binding emotions. It's not separate. That's its profound nature. It includes everything. It's not even a matter of inclusion. It's just the way of things. And so if we think of practice as just continually trying to be in alignment with the way things actually are and really develop faith that those qualities that this is expounding on are our basic qualities, then we might be able to relinquish and lose our faith in sort of our conflict-based model of getting things done, of our success and failure paradigm, 
by which all things are supposed to function. It's asking a lot, which is why it's a path. <laughs> why it develops step by step. Why session is so important. So we have all of these moments in which this is really on display. And we can begin to see what is showing itself in front of us. And seeing it, we can begin to gain some understanding right, of what we're seeing. And that then begins to bring us in closer to realize it directly, which is what it goes on to talk about. But just to bring to mind in moments where things do not seem okay, with you, with your mind, with what's arising. As the faith mind says, in moments of doubt, just think not to. In moments of doubt, just think my self-nature as attested to by the Buddhists. I mean, or maybe this is the biggest massive scale scam ever, right? <laughs> right. Maybe not. <clears throat> but to bring to mind that this is what's been attested to and verified over and over and over throughout all of the different countries, the languages, the cultures, the times, the practitioners, the schools of Buddhism. It is so. And so in those moments to remember, to bring to mind, to stand in that understanding, to stand in that faith, can be very powerful. Right? as a way of meeting that habitual sense that there's a problem here. And the problem is you. That's what we're freeing ourselves of. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.